Someone had abandoned a bunch of dog-eared, moth-eating, moldy romance novels in a box in the corner of my house. When I landed upon them, it was like I had completed my journey to the center of the earth. The men were always rich and handsome and damaged. The dating was always passionate. The sex was always hot. The women were always beautiful. The stories were always filled with longing and regrets and profound aching desire. When the man finally got the girl into bed, he ravaged her until, despite herself, she lost her bra and her breathing and capitulated to the force of his sexiness. He slid into her with the sexiest authority and she came and came and came. That was an excerpt of a post written by Voluptuous Voltarian a long-time contributor to Adventures from the Bedrooms of African Women. That story was titled, Fuck You for Fucking Up My Sex Life, Milton Boone, Harlequin Romance, and Silhouette Desire. My name is Nanada Kwasichema. And I'm Malika Grant. Welcome to the Adventures from the Bedrooms of African Women podcast, or as you will hear us frequently refer to it as, the Adventures podcast, where we explore all things sex, sexualities, and pleasure. 13 years ago, Malaika and I said, why don't we start a blog that shares stories about sex from an African perspective? And that was when Adventures was born. I need to add that we have had our own share of controversies, and some of our African brothers and sisters admittedly have given us the heat. But as the kids say, we move. Just over a decade later, we thought, why don't we make this a podcast? To cut a long story short, we're here today, and we hope that you will ride with us. Malaika, come on now. We haven't even started, and you've already thrown in an innuendo? Ah, my sister, I'm innocent, too. That was not the intention. <laughs> okay, maybe a little bit. Anyway, in this episode, we're exploring romance novels, from how it shaped our ideas around sex to just downright fucking up some people's sex lives. I started reading romance novels early, around 14, and by coincidence, that was around the time I had my first sexual encounter. Believe you me, it was nothing like what I read. First of all, the sex wasn't in a spring meadow or a king-sized four-poster bed with silken sheets. It was on a cold, concrete floor of our boys' quarters. There were no promises of undying love, no moaning from either of us. It was just frustrated grunts, panic, and sweat. And so when I look back and compared my experience with a thrilling fiction I'd read and was so excited by, I was angry and I was resentful and I was confused. I mean, after all, I had been reluctant to have sex, just like the women in the books, but I didn't find myself lost in rapture or riding waves of desire. So clearly, something was wrong because I never wanted to have sex again because it was so different from what I had read. Malaika, I'm traumatized on behalf of your younger self. I'm so sorry that you had that experience. 
I also started reading romance really early as a kid, maybe at 10 years old or so. Hey, 10, bad girl. (laughs) (laughs) I was a bad girl, but I was also a late bloomer. I was just reading. I wasn't doing anything, Malaika. So I didn't have penetrative sex until two months before my 23rd birthday. My housemates used to tease me about being a virgin. And so I think what reading romance did for me was that it made me want more from sex. I wanted the stars. I wanted explosions. I feel like that's what I was promised by the books. I wanted to melt in ecstasy. And yeah, reading romance definitely made me thirst for a better sex life. And what about other people? We hit the virtual streets to ask folks how reading romance had affected their sex lives. Romance novels. <laughs> um, I didn't even know what an orgasm was, but the way that romance novels described it, it was very exhilarating. I was like, yes, I want some of that. I had sex the first time and um, it was nothing <laughs> like that. There was no big hulky guy who would carry me. I remember romance novels being the thing that urged me into sex like they had this really exciting adjectives for them and i remember they used to make me feel very hot down there (laughs) i read a whole lot of romance novels i read them so much that somewhere in senior high school i started writing a book myself because i felt i know what love is even though i was a virgin so before i ever experienced orgasm Comparing what I had read in the romance novels where they go like, and there's this explosion and, um, or he traces his fingers or whatever down her spine and she got shivers and all that. I didn't feel shit. (laughs) I didn't feel shit. Malaika, part of what I loved about romance novels then, but it's kind of embarrassing to admit it now, were the descriptions. My little 10-year-old heart would beat faster when I read things like... The tumescent throbbing member, you know, as he, he thrust his manhood into her, her soft parts, she quivered. That was voluptuous Voltarian again, who we're going to call VV for short. Nana, I cringe when I think about those descriptions all over again. Oh my God, so cringeworthy. Romance novels were full of sex, and for my little girl brain, that was exciting. No one else was saying anything to me about sex. I don't think I was even at the stage where I was being told, don't do it. And so, in hindsight, I can see that to a large degree, I was devouring romance novels as a form of sex education. And that, my friend, is extremely fucked up. So fucked up. That wasn't the case for Vivi. As a writer based here in Accra, she wrote that blog post for us about romance novels ruining her sex life. And she tells us why. I wasn't having orgasms and he was. And, you know, as a young baby feminist, I thought that was unfair and patriarchal. And I didn't understand why I wasn't coming enough. And I was resentful that he was and he wasn't invested in my pleasure and blah, 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 blah. And it wasn't until I got into the new relationship and I had some time to sort of think about it that I realized that my entire concept of sex was based on romance novels. And so I realized that all through a sexual relationship, 
I had never participated actively in making myself come. I had always thought that me coming was his responsibility because that's what happened in romance novels and that there should even be a little bit of resistance on my part to me coming because it made it so much more explosive and romantic when it finally happened. And so I had put all this pressure on this poor boy to make me come and hadn't been doing anything else on my part to facilitate this coming. And then when it wasn't happening, I got resentful because I felt like it, it meant he wasn't truly invested in my pleasure. He, he wasn't dying to please me. My orgasms weren't the highlight of his day, blah, 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 blah. And it all really just comes from finding a huge box of Mils and Boone in a corner of my house when I was eight years old and spending the next eight years of my life avariciously reading Mills and Boone, Silhouette Desire, Harlequin Romance, and every historical novel that you can think of. And literally, I had just poisoned my brain. Like that, that stuff was, had given me a blueprint for romance and sex that was totally, 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 totally unrealistic. So... Um, tell us, talk to us a little bit about um, when you were growing up and what kind of information you got about sex apart from the romance novels. Where did you get your info about l'amour? Hmm. So my family is very liberal and very chill, at least by Ghanaian standards. So sex was never really something that wasn't talked about. I remember, um, I think I was maybe 12 or 13, and my dad had to have surgery, and I discovered this pack of condoms. And I started counting the condoms and every couple of days, one of them would be missing. And I'd be like, hmm, I guess they had sex. Hmm, I guess they had sex. And I remember I went one day and like three or four were missing. And I went to my mom and I was like, daddy just had surgery. Like you guys can't be doing it that much. You had to. And she was like, what the hell are you talking about? And I was like, I count the condoms. And she was very, very amused. I didn't get in any trouble for it because that's just kind of how casual my family was. But it was very much sort of thought about as sex is something that you do when you're older. And it's not something you should be ashamed of. But if you're a girl... Your, your body is priceless and you shouldn't let any man use you. Don't let any man use you. This was a phrase that summed up the minimal sex education given to every Ghanaian girl. Sex scenes and romance novels of the 80s and 90s usually portrayed men as strong and dominating with women presented as passive and yielding to the desires of men in ways that today are understood to be violent. Listen to this scene from The Master of Uluru, a romance novel published in 1980. Never had she been made so aware of a man's physical strength, and she was powerless to escape the hurtful pressure of his own mouth as he plundered hers, forcing her lips apart as he savaged the delicate tissue against her teeth until she could taste the sweet saltiness of her own blood. Oh my God, that just sounds like, ugh, I have no words. It sounds awful. It sounds painful. It doesn't sound like sex. It sounds like punishment. It, it, that's, punishment is exactly it. I want to pray for her. 
Pray for her. I will. And for Vivi. I hadn't realized until I grew up how problematic even that stuff was. That it just wasn't about the sex and the desire. But all of their books have this very unhealthy power dynamic where the guy is always wealthy and powerful and the girl is always young and naive. And then in addition to that, the guy has these sort of authoritarian possessive behaviors that are like borderline stalkerish, you know, and just like very suspect, you know, and, and, and there's all this force. There's, the, the guy is like the driving engine of the entire relationship. And when he finally decides to take her is when she is taken. And then, you know, the love and the sex, the sex happens. So the, the, the female characters are very one dimensional and extremely vulnerable, which now as an adult, I realize is quite scary. You know, the interesting thing, these power dynamics still ring true today. You see, oh, and you know, there's this idea that sex is something that women give and men take from us. It still continues into adult relationships. So you find women in their 30s, 40s, and even their 50s only now learning about sexual agency. But you know what? I'm actually curious about how Black women writers are reimagining the genre for themselves and for their readers. I think the kind of um, expectation is that if you read romance, you're of the opinion that your life should reflect what you read on the page. But I think for me, I don't expect my life to be like a romance fiction novel. They're not sort of crafted in a way that is meant to directly reflect reality. That is Sarita Domingo, a romance author and editorial director who lives in London. I think romance fiction is trying to depict the emotional truth of um romantic love but not necessarily the kind of day-to-day have you done the washing up type um, interaction people might think oh have you drawn this from your own life and it's like whose life would be like this I wish (laughs) (laughs) so Rita has written a handful of books and recently edited a romantic fiction anthology called who's loving you a collection of love stories by British women of color She didn't really grow up reading romance novels, but got into them through her work in publishing. I hadn't read a Harlequin romance until I worked in the field. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was fully, fully grown by then. So maybe it didn't um, influence me in the way that it might have done if I had read those stories at a younger age. What I do think it did was make me feel like those stories wouldn't include people like me. So even as a writer, I think it took me a genuinely quite long period of time to really think that I should step into the truth of writing people whose backgrounds reflected my own. Because I kind of just had this weird innate assumption that that's not what readers would be looking for. And I do think, you know, I've encountered other um, writers of color who write romance who haven't felt empowered to write stories that reflect their own backgrounds, which I think is the real tragedy 
um, that needs to be addressed urgently. Listen, and what a tragedy it's been. I can't imagine the kind of isolation Sarita just felt being in those spaces. I just felt like a complete fish out of water. I didn't, I, I didn't look like anybody, you know, I'd go to an event and it would just be a lot of middle-aged white women. And I was a young black woman and I was, I didn't feel like I fit in or that I was particularly welcome. And I think that continues to be the case, to be honest. And even when she worked as a commissioning editor for Harlequin, one of the world's biggest dedicated romance publishers, Sarita still struggled. It was a real struggle to even feel that there were writers out there who wanted to write in the romance space or who felt like it was for them. Well, my cousin Nana Malone is a best-selling romance writer who has written well over 80 titles. Yes, you heard correctly, people. Eight zero. I just knew we had to speak to her for this episode. We couldn't get together in real life, so we had to put up with a dodgy Zoom link. I try not to take credit for her success, but I was actually the one who got her into reading romance novels, and so I think I can take a bit of credit. Oh my God, no, you take all the credit. I tell everyone the story. I mean, if you look at my Amazon bio, it talks about the tattered romance novel given to me by my cousin. You are that cousin. I was in Ghana um, the summer I turned 13. I think, Nana, you have to remind me, was I think I was at your house. Yeah, um, you were at my house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Nana is like, psst, a post. <laughs> There'd be kissing in this book. And she just slides it over. And I, you know, I like, I don't remember the title. I'm so bad. I never remember titles, but I remember it was like a Greek shipping tycoon, Mills and Boone situation. You know, it's like tattered. It's been well read. And that was my first romance novel. One of the early realizations that Nana Malone had in her career was that books with black people on the cover tend to be hidden away in the back of bookstores. With that in mind, she's had to make certain decisions about her writing career. When I started writing, I said to myself, what kind of career do I want? And what did I want when I was young girl reading romance? And my commitment was I wanted to see people, women in particular, because I love men, but you know, why men great till they gotta be great. Um, men are not my problem, not my concern, and men do not consume romance. I also had to make some smart marketing decisions as well, because I am a businesswoman. In order to ensure a decent amount of sales, Nana Malone chose not to put Black men on the cover of her books, even when they feature in her stories. So even if like I've got a Black hero, I'm like, huh, I'm not going to put him on the cover. No, no, no. Um, because women, by and large, consumers of romance, by and large, especially in the early days, are they've been programmed to go, oh, well, I mean, romance heroes are white. Um, and publishers would tell you this. And so I was like, ah, got you. So marketing decisions. If I'm going to make a black couple, then I am going to have a harder time, which also means I make less money. And I was like, nope. So my commitment is to brown women. <laughs> You're going to get lots of love in my books. Brown men. Sorry, I will get you in here, but your chances are you're not going to go on a cover because then I'm, my books are going to get labeled black books and be hidden from the world view. So no, no. 
I know that there are authors and there are readers who are like, but that's not fair. And it's not, and it sucks. I also know that I get offered when I do do contracts, I get offered less money. I get offered less prominence. I get offered less promo. I am aware, but I made a commitment to women of color who the men are doesn't really matter in terms of coloring. Like to me, my husband's black. I don't care. He's like, make that money. Um, so I don't care really, but my commitment is that girls who look like me will see themselves in my books. And that is really sad, Malaika. I mean, even in these times, we can't have black couples on the covers of romance novels, mm. all in the name of marketing and promotion. And writers like Nana Malone have to make these sorts of compromises to be successful. But thankfully, the future is bright. And Sarita Domingo's latest book, If I Don't Have You, does have a black couple on the cover. Yeah, I think that was the book where I really started feeling that it was important to me to portray um, black characters in love and particularly a dark skinned black woman in love. And, um, you know, in, in a romantic situation, at the very least, it's a little complicated in the book. But um, seeing the cover was hugely important to me as well to see these two black characters being depicted um, in a way that I I still think is rare. Working on the publishing side of the industry seems to have really given Sarita the confidence to tell these stories. It also really opened up my eyes to how important love stories are to the type of people who maybe get dismissed or overlooked and that romance fiction of this sort can be dismissed and overlooked, but then is also the thing that drives a business to a multi-million pound, you know, um, hundred year long empire. So I think people can kind of dismiss romance or think that it's not important, but it is very important. It's very important to the publishing industry and it's very important to millions of people around the world. And as the new editorial director of Trapeze Books, a line that states that its mission is to publish books that start a conversation, our girl Sarita is looking to keep pushing boundaries in the genre. The challenge I'm finding is just finding people who are writing romance or who feel that that's something for them that are either from diverse backgrounds or are writing something that pushes the envelope a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. I think the challenge with romance is that people feel that there are conventions they need to hit or ways that they need to write in order for it to be classed as romance. Um, but what I'm most interested in is just finding those love stories that do depict people's backgrounds of varying degrees more authentically, writers who are from more um, so-called diverse backgrounds. Uh, but yeah, it's about kind of finding people who are writing that, which um, at the moment, I'm not finding people who are writing romance specifically like that. So if anyone's out there, <laughs> reach out to me. <laughs> yes, reach out to Sarita with your stories of love as you want to tell it. She says she's interested in reading about throuples and with the interest in black British writers like Bolu Babalola, Talia Hibbert, and Frances Mensah Williams, it seems like the future will be full of stories with characters that look like us. 
I feel like there are more of us coming through, but it still feels a bit like a trickle, to be honest. Um, but at least, <laughs> you know, I think it's starting to broaden out and people are at least having these conversations much more. Well, a few years ago, I was on a panel with a Nigerian romance writer, Kiru Tai. And as part of my preparation, I decided to read one of her books. That book was entitled Keeping Secrets and was part one of the Essien trilogy. It took me back to my childhood and everything I loved about romance. I finished the first book and the next night bought another one and then another until I finished the entire trilogy. Romance novels by contemporary African writers like Kiru are nothing like the ones that we grew up on. Well, the flowery language is still intact, but whew, the sex scenes are on a whole different level. Here's an excerpt from Writing Rebel. Come back to bed, Tony. The sultry invitation had him rotating his head to look back. Silver light from the window showed the girl leaning on her right elbow, her other hand pushing down the blue sheet revealing a slender body of chocolate skin, dark nipples peeking at him in invitation. A coquettish smile curled her full lips. He pictured those lips wrapped around his dick, and his half-awake erection turned to a full-blown morning wood. He should take up her invitation and return to bed. Hey, okay! Nana, I can see how you got hooked onto this series. Yes! As an adult, Kiru was inspired to start writing because she wanted a sense of work-life balance and knew she couldn't have it whilst working 60 hours a week as a project manager. I was stressed out. I was like, you know what, is this really what I, you know, it's like, is this really my life, you know? And I needed to do something. I needed to kind of find the balance. I needed to change career. I got into actually two degrees, I had the master's, you know, and I was like, you know what, you know, you've satisfied your parents, you know, you've ticked all the boxes, you've become a mother, you've, you know, you've got married and all that, but what do you really want to do? Around that period when Kiri was questioning her life choices, she picked up a romance novel to read. Reading that book generated even more questions for her. Why are there no stories about Africans, you know? in romantic relationships, you know, why are the stories about African that I was reading all depressing and about war and poverty and all that? Why were there no feel-good stories about Africans? Were we not having fun? Were we not having good relationships? You know, were we not falling in love? That led to Kiwi's Eureka moment. Why don't I write the kind of romance novels that I would like to read? In 2010, Kiwi submitted to an online contest by Milton Boone to discover new voices. And her first story, Lost Prince, Reluctant Bride, was shortlisted in the top 10, which gave her the validation she needed to write her first book, His Treasure, a story set in pre-colonial Southeast Nigeria. Now, Kiru runs her own publishing business. Yes, I love a black woman who's an entrepreneur. My uh, publishing house is called Love Africa Press, and we... Specialize in romance novels, basically African romance novels. So basically, since I've been writing, I've had other writers contact me, say, oh, Kiri, can you help me? I want to get published. You know, how do I do this? Blah, blah, blah. You know, so 
all these kind of writers who don't have avenues, who don't have published, I know how much I struggled when I started out with finding a publisher who would publish my stories, you know, um, that unfortunately some of the Western publishers, they look at the story and they say, ah, okay, you're writing stories about African billionaires, but Hancom, where are the ghettos, where are, you know, where are the slums, you know, where is the poverty, you know, and I'm like, hang on a minute, this isn't, and I thought, well, okay, you know, well, okay, you might not be an expert, but, you know, you've had 10 years experience doing this. Um, why don't you kind of put your money where your mouth is, basically, which is what I've done. Kiru is also interested in publishing romance aimed specifically at the young adult market. I would love to see African writers doing young adult your romance, and I would love to see, you know, um, young adult romance, you know, with Africans in it, definitely. When we read our books, we read them because we'll, we'll take them because we, were, we wanted to read, basically. And so, at least for me, I wanted to read and I'd read practically anything. <laughs> to the next generation, here's to books that won't fuck up your sex lives. Speaking of books, don't say that we don't put you on to the good stuff. Nana's book is out, The Sex Lives of African Women. Drum roll, please. Come, 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 listen to me. This is our official Bible. You are not a true adventurous fan if you haven't picked up a copy for yourself and bought one for a friend and for another friend. I am smiling so hard right now, Malaika. I love the way you're selling my market. Ah, sister, this is our ministry. We must move. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Adventures Podcast. We will see you on the next one. Still talking all things sex. And sex. And sex. The Adventures from the Bedrooms of African Women podcast is hosted by Malaika Grant and Anander Kose Chiang. Freddie Boswell is a senior producer. Fatima Derby is our associate producer. Written by Wana Udubang. Audio editors are Messi Barno and Tevin Sudi. Malaika Grant and Anander Kawasechiyama are executive producers. The Adventures from the Bedrooms of African Women podcast is a production of AQ Studios in partnership with Masi Media. Messi Kidaga is our studio administrator and Sally Chum is the AQ Studios CEO. Follow us on all our social media, that's at AQ Studios Podcasts. Our theme music is Damn, performed by Ria Boss. Music from this episode comes from Blue Dots Sessions. Find adventures from the bedrooms of African women anywhere you get your podcasts. And in the pursuit of all things sex, sexuality, and pleasure, follow us on all our social media platforms at Adventures From. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Damn, she's so fly. God damn, she's